John Clark, and welcome to Everyday Anarchism. Thank you for joining me. Okay, now we can really start. (laughs) The only thing I realized that, and I don't know the answer to this, and I thought I would ask you at the beginning, is just if you could tell us how, you know, if you could briefly biographically tell us how you became a, you know, a philosopher of anarchism, if that sounds good, we can start there. Okay, well, uh, do you think that's an easy question? (laughs) No, no, that's why, John, if I thought it was an easy question, I would have just asked it rather than... uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, it's an enormous story uh, because of all the evolution that I went through to get there. Um, And, uh, I mean, there are even questions of assuming what that means. Uh, And when I thought I was, was I? You know, because uh, certain things have made me wonder if after I thought I was an anarchist or a philosopher, whether I really was, you know, uh, what does that really mean? Uh, I'm not I'm not surprised by this at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I guess I could I I could try to answer that question. You know, I had a long political development. I was brought up in a very conservative atmosphere. And uh, I guess to jump kind of quickly to what happened uh, in the late 60s or fairly late 60s, I discovered anarchism. I had read some things in high school, for instance. We read Thoreau when I was a junior in high school. I was really impressed by that. Uh, But I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know why it was so interesting to me. Around 1966, uh, Leonard Krimmerman had come to New Orleans. He was chair of the philosophy department at the University of New Orleans, where I wasn't. And he did a book called Patterns of Anarchy, which was one of the first anthologies. So that was a big jump in my awareness. Also, another book came out, Horowitz uh, was the uh, editor, called The Anarchists. And I read that also. Uh, it was just the beginning of the rediscovery of anarchism. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what it was up until then. Uh, I, I suppose my outlook was something like what we would call a right-wing libertarian. I was more of a lib- well, what's called in America libertarian, uh, which shouldn't be called a libertarian. But I, I was interested in freedom. You know, I, uh, when I was in high school, I, I, I joined Young Americans for Freedom, for instance, a right-wing group, because I was interested in freedom. Uh, but then I discovered that there were other views of freedom. <laughs> Actually, this book that we're going to talk about is kind of, in some ways, the culmination of that development of thinking about the issue of freedom. And the chapter on the chapters on freedom and domination are a result of that. So I, I found out that uh, there was a larger concept of freedom than the one you know freedom is non-coercion was not everything. Uh, also, the state was not everything. That ultimately I found out that there were different forms of domination that were the real problem, and that there was a larger concept of freedom that was much more inspiring. Uh, so that was the that was the direction I was going in. Uh, a lot of things happened. You know, the war in Vietnam was going on. I, I originally, I joined the ROTC when I was in college. My father worked for the Air Force. I had a very positive view of people in the military and all that. Uh, you know, I had to break with that uh, in many ways uh, in order to get where I was. Uh, 
I remember uh, Carl Hess came to the University of New Orleans and spoke, and I was the first person I had ever heard invoke uh, Zapata. And he quoted Zapata about as long as there is a state in capitalism, the people have to be armed or something like that. You know, these were very uh, incendiary ideas at that time. Uh, so it's a big story. The, the, there was a cultural change that was going on. Personal changes were going on in the late 60s through the early 70s uh, that, that affected me a lot. Uh, I, in 1970, I started a group called the New Orleans Libertarian Alliance. Uh, I didn't celebrate the 50th anniversary of it for some reason uh, three years ago, but uh, we should have. But it was a very strange group. We had right and I, I had become a left wing libertarian by that time. But we had right and left wing libertarians in the same group. So we'd get together every week and fight <laughs> over pro private property, you know. Uh, so, so uh, you know, there are a lot of things like that that were happening uh, that affected me. Uh, you know, meeting Leonard Krimmerman was important. He was he did a, a guest uh, editorial uh, stint at, with this uh, publication called A Way Out, which is a pub publication of the School of Living. If you know who they are, they came. The, no. uh, uh, well. Um, Robert Borsodi was in New Orleans at the time. He he had a coffee house that was a real center of interesting activity. His his grandfather was Ralph Borsodi, and uh, he and a woman called uh, Mildred Loomis were maybe the big figures in something uh, called the School of Living. And they put out back in the 30s, I think they had a magazine called the, the Green Revolution. Uh, I came into contact with with that kind of back to the land anarchism, really a ecological anarchism. Uh, 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 Len Krimerman talked about this. What was the name that uh, oh, Lewis Herber? He, he said I should read Lewis Herber. That was Murray Bookchin. Uh, <laughs> that was one of his pseudonyms. I, I first heard about him as Lewis Herber, and. Uh, he said, read that. And there was an interest in ecological anarchism. And of course, I got very much involved in that. By 1972, uh, I helped bring Bookchin into New Orleans. And uh, then I got wrapped up in social ecology. And that, that kind of determined the direction I was going in after that for quite a while. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of steps along the way. But this is probably not the real answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say, John, that that, wor that works as an answer for a podcast, but I also am willing to go wherever you want to go. So when you say this isn't the real answer, what does that mean? In their personal things that were going on, it is what it isn't. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that I gradually uh, became more and more aware of the lies of the society that I lived in and the fact that, you know, that the, the, there were things within me or about me that were were not real in relation to the society. I, I started looking for another community, really. That was very important. Uh, back in the seven, by the mid seventies, we had a group called the Black Pearl Mutual Aid and Pleasure Club, uh, which was a kind of well, we had a we had a, an affinity group within it. We had a larger. We met every Sunday night. The best thing we did was we had a big dinner. We had a couple of people who were cooks at a vegetarian restaurant, other people who cooked pretty good food. And we had a wonderful dinner. We had kind of 
mediocre discussions, but we had a great <laughs> dinner and it was a, a great time to get together. And we had an affinity group within the larger group, uh, which was kind of crazy, but it was a, it was a step in trying to put into practice uh, things that we were talking about. And our, 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 our affinity group was sort of a neo-situationist group, I would say. We were very much influenced by the situationists at that time. Um, so that's another, you know, the personal dimension, the cultural dimension was very important. The reaction against the war was a big part of uh, becoming, you know, part of the anti-war movement and a lot of other things uh, had a big effect. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that there was so much re reactivity in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so I, I had to work hard on overcoming reactivity and this sort of uh, automatic reaction against whatever existed, which produced a kind of naive um, negativity, let's say. Okay. Um... Not a concrete negativity or a determinate negativity, you know, which is what we need. Now, now that we've gotten a little bit of your of your background and your journey, oh, I want to say, I mean, I grew up in a uh, a religious. It was an int. I don't. They wouldn't describe themselves as fundamentalist because it's an intellectual strand of Presbyterianism, but it was definitely right wing. I mean, I think the political views were indistinguishable from, uh, you know, besides the fact that my uh, the the pastors can read some. Aramaic. I don't think that the views were really uh, that different. And I gravitated from that position absolutely to right libertarianism because I saw, you know, I saw from my perch on, on the right the uh, inconsistencies and, you know, in many ways the cruelties and the domineering nation, uh, the domineering nature of, you know, what we could call progressivism, I suppose. Um, and I also saw the problems and domination and the sort of theocratic views I was getting from my family. And I did not have the tools to realize precisely as you say, that a, that a right libertarianism is not actually going to bring about liberty, but I was, I was looking for it. I was looking right. for it. I was a teenager, you know, in high school and college. Um, Thoreau and Emerson made a big impact on me as, as well. And I also got sort of the sense that Thoreau and Emerson were kind of right-wing figures, which I, I personally no, no longer believe. So I think this journey, for, to me, makes a lot of sense. The journey you're describing in mine, I think we're in some ways similar. I must admit, I missed the 60s by a wide, a wide margin, which who knows what that, what that might have done. But I'm very sympathetic to this libertarian to anarchism path. It certainly resonates with me, and I imagine it resonates with a lot of people, although I certainly can't speak to that with certainty. Um, so I guess yeah, this is, if you would respond to that uh, at all. What you're saying, uh, yeah, what you're saying uh, reminds me of, of part of my own experience, and it, it wasn't all negative. I, I, in a way, I was brought up in the kind of fundamentalism, which was uh, uh, German Lutheranism, well, at least one side of my family. The other side were French Catholics. And uh, one of the things that influenced me a lot was my father. Uh, I went through a period of thinking, well, uh, you know, I, that I was breaking with all of that. But I, I found out that uh, 
my father's religious views, and I, this reminded me very much when I read Elise Reclus, uh, his his experience. His his father was a minister and a and a, a, a break off of Calvinism. It's a very kind of radical Protestantism. Uh, not not really in some ways orthodox, but in other ways uh, very heterodox. And uh, I did have this experience, uh, particularly with my father and people in his family, of a small community of people who had very deep beliefs and commitments. And basically, uh, particularly in the case of my father, he re it reminds me of the young Hegel, actually, although my father was completely non-intellectual. But the young Hegel was a big uh, believer in, in the, you know, it was the Joachimite, the, the third period of history of the Holy Spirit, where love would rule or not rule, <laughs> rule through not ruling, really. And in a certain sense, I, I got that idea, I think, from my father and members of his family uh, who really believed in love and believed in the community, although they didn't express it at all in terms of, of anarchism or anything like that. Obviously, they, they, they accepted the, the conventional wisdom. They were good citizens and all of that. Uh, but they also had these religious beliefs, which in a way were very radical, if you look at the implications of them. And I, I think ultimately I had to go back to that, you know, that, that idea of the small community and um, commitment to things out of free will, you know, that's that, those kinds of ideas and, and uh, kind of free cooperation. Yeah, I think I think that all makes sense. And that's one of the reasons why, as I was reading the impossible community, um, the microecology of community chapter stood out to me. So this is not the order I said we were going to talk about this, but we'll jump here. And then we, we do have to get to Hegel and the, and the dialectic. I got to give the people what they want. and They want Hegel. Um, but actually, John, I mean, I don't know about an outcry, but I did have months ago a reader um, a listener write in and say, can you, you know, address Hegelian dialectic and how we can use Hegel in a radical way? And the short answer, Dave, is no, I cannot uh, do that. But uh, my guest today uh, can do that. And so I'll give John a shot at Hegel and dialectical radicalism in just a second. But first, I want to just praise you because when you, in, in microecology of community, you describe you know, what, what we could think of as the right wing movement, if we want to, as not a not a top down uh, thing being run from Washington, D.C. or wherever it would be run from. I think that's a much better description of the progressive movement, at least these days, as, as kind of centralized and, and bureaucratic and top down. But the right wing movement is really <laughs> a a commune of communes, except it's not, they're not communes, right? It's in so many ways, these, all of these churches that um, are, are within themselves are a beautiful community and then are networked with, with one another. And it's, they have uh, become devoted to a political program that is reactionary and, and bad. And you and I have both come out of that, but the, the organization of right-wing Christianity resembles, I think, much more a true grassroots, participatory, libertarian community of communities. Well, I'm not sure if it's, you know, I, I, 
I would put all of those in quotes. Uh, <laughs> it is participatory, yeah, sure. uh, and it is a community. Uh, I, I don't think it's truly libertarian. I mean, one thing I like to uh, harp on is, you know, where the word libertarian came from. You know, it came from Joseph de Jacques. We had a conference uh, a few months back on, on his thought. It was the 200th anniversary of his birth. And he actually was in New Orleans when he, he wrote uh, this open letter to Proudhon in which he said that Proudhon because of two things. One is because he believed that you could trace an individual's person, an individual person's uh, contribution to the value of the product that that person produces. He rejected that because he said it was a social product. And secondly, uh, Proudhon was a misogynist, a sexist, patriarchal in his values. And he says, because of these things, you are not a true libertaire. And that's where the word entered into political discourse. And I think we should always uh, criticize the use of it by right-wing libertarians because they don't really have an adequate conception of freedom or liberty. Yeah, and I want to say I probably shouldn't have even have used the word libertarian when I was listing those categories. I mean, in some ways, my libertarianism was a revolt against that religious community I was in. But otherwise, I completely take your your point. I mean, you, if it is what it isn't, that definition of libertarian seems the exact opposite of the right-wing definition of libertarian, which is whatever you produce, you own, you know, in, right, right. in, in totality. That's a complete dialectical inversion. If I dare use the yeah. word dialectical with you. Well, don't hesitate. We can talk about it. But also, oh, yeah, just tell me if I'm know, doing it wrong. Think... <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Usually there's something right in whatever you do wrong. <laughs> there's something wrong in whatever you do right. So I think it's best to look at the two aspects, at least the two aspects. Uh, one of the things that I got from the 70s, I remember we had this uh, slogan, the free world is not free and the communist world is not communist. You know, oh, I, I wasn't using it is what it isn't at that time. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> You know, that, that was the problem, basically. And it, it bothers me whenever people call them communists. Yeah, I mean, the, the very word, I mean, I only learned relatively recently what a Soviet was. And, you know, a, a Soviet is so, it's a sort of yeah. commune. It's, it's, we should so have been called the anti-Soviet Union. <laughs> it, was, yeah, that's what it, was. it was. It was so anti-Soviet. It's unbelievable. Right. It's just wonderful when you look at reality to see how much it is what it is isn't uh, <laughs> control. You know, it, it, we're, it, we're, it's everywhere, basically. Uh, so, so, and you know, that's what imminent critique is about. Look at the concept of freedom in the free world. Some country was the biggest dictatorship in the free world, you know, and they, they could say <laughs> this without blinking. You know, this is just normal that that it's important to defend the free world. Indonesia, you know, I spent a lot of time working on uh, West Papua and East Timor issues. And uh, that was you know, the Suharto dictatorship was one of the, the bulwarks of the free world. And it was probably the most genocidal dictatorship uh, since the Nazis. 
I mean, in East Timor, a third of the people died within a few years as a result of the Indonesian uh, invasion. And in West Papua, there was a large uh, amount of death and uh, oppression. Uh, and that was the free world. There were so, so many dictatorships were part of the free world. Fra Franco you know, was part of the free world, uh, who was the model of fascism, you know, the, the fight against fascism, the Spanish Civil War, uh, was you know the the primordial fight against fascism really, uh, and that was uh, against this leader of the free world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I personally I, I admire many of the many of the ideals in the liberal tradition. It does seem that the liberals uh, not only don't hold actually hold those ideals, but in fact you know, seem to annihilate them in the same way. Like I mentioned earlier that I, you could see Thoreau or Emerson as conservatives and many people do. I mean, I admire many conservative ideas insofar as, you know, you can think of conservative as uh, as an idea of preservation. I mean, you can think of Kropotkin or, or Mumford even as sort of the ultimate conservatives in terms of valuing what's important and good and has been bequeathed to us by the past. But that doesn't seem to me to be uh, the, whatever it's called, conservatism doesn't seem to do a very good job of doing that. Just like liberalism doesn't seem to do a very good job of holding up liberty in that in in any sort of sense that's worth holding up. You know, the conservatives are the people who destroy the most. And uh, you know, Paul Goodman, uh, who is one of the great figures in American anarchism, uh, subtitled one of his books, one of his last books, "Notes of a Neolithic Conservative." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like Which this. Makes I use... sense if you're interested, you know, in conserving and actually conserving, you know, and and uh, there used to be conservatives who were conservationists, but it's hard to find them anymore. Yeah, and you know the conservative tradition. I mean, Rod Dreher, I think, is from your part of the country. the 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 conservative tradition has also lost whatever was even pseudo libertarian about it. it it's become a very statist tradition. I mean, Ron DeSantis is the new model. I don't want to talk about that. Sorry, that's my fault for bringing this up. Um, let's okay. talk about uh, Hegel and and how Hegel can be a radical. Of course, I mean, I was taught and I haven't read much Hegel because I found him so difficult. Um, I was taught, I suppose, some by my professors and some by Nietzsche, uh, an idea of Hegel as a sort of arch conservative, a defender of Christianity, a defender of European power, uh, and in our when we talked before uh, and reading your book, I don't get that sense of Hegel. So, can you give us uh, a different a different version of Hegel? Well, I can give you several. <laughs> you want? Uh, I mean, there's the young Hegel. I sometimes I say uh, I'm I'm a young Hegelian. Not that I'm a young Hegelian <laughs> like Marx and Engels and Stirner and so forth, but but I like the young Hegel. You know, he young the young Hegel wrote his his um, early theological writings. They're called and other things in which he uh, I call him the hippie Hegel too. I mean, he 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 talked about love all the time, and it was this Joachimite third third period of history kind of view, and he has this complete attack on the state. I think I put it in this book somewhere. I think it's, the, it is. It is it's at the beginning book. of one chapter. I, I love this quote uh, uh, in his early uh, writings. 
he's very critical of the state, but he's implicitly, you see, this is also one of the things that you find in dialectical thought is imminent critique, which is using uh, a point of view against itself. Someone develops certain ideas and they're trying to say one thing, but if you look at what they're saying, it's actually a, a critique of what they're supposedly defending. And Hegel does that. I try to, I try to discuss that in the chapter on uh, freedom uh, in the book to show that for freedom in Hegel, only a non-statist society could be free. You know, there are contradictions in having a statist uh, version of that view of freedom. So part of it isn't necessarily to say everybody's wrong in what they thought Hegel said, although they are wrong in a lot of things that they thought he said, particularly the worst of all is thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which he did not use. You know, Fichte used it and other people used it. And, uh, uh, I, I, I'm, you know, so some commentators said there's nowhere anywhere in, in Hegel's thought that you can actually see him advocating that model as a model of dialectic. Now, you can look at some of what he says, and if you're looking for thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you can, you can find it. But one of the things about, I mean, I, I recommend, you know, Zizek is very good you know, on Hegel in many ways, and Katharine Malibu is now, I mean, she's doing Hegelian anarchism, basically. You know, she she, she did this book, um, uh, Au Voleur is the name of it. It hasn't been translated. Stop Thief would be the translation. Uh, and it's how so many European thinkers, particularly French thinkers, have stolen ideas from anarchism, but they don't want to say they're anarchists. And she discusses uh, various people. She's very much influenced by Derrida, who was her, her uh professor and thesis director and wrote a 50 page introduction to our book, The Future of Hegel, which is a great book. Uh, and, uh, but she, she really uh, points out how Foucault also, but didn't want to be associated with the anarchist movement and, uh, and other people. There are about four or five major figures. Uh, she points out, uh, do an anarchist critique, but don't want to espouse anarchism. They say, oh, it's not about that. They're, they're afraid of the political implications, in a sense, is what she's saying. So they steal certain ideas. And basically, it's what's interesting about it, though, is that she's one of the few writers, of, and I, I did some of this in this book and the next one, and I plan to do even more in the next book, with the concept of arche and anarche. It's surprising how many anarchists don't really think about RK and anarche and how basic it is to the anarchist position. You know, her, her view is that uh, you have to look at RK as meaning, well, she, she, the way she says it in, uh, in, in French is commencement and commandement, which is origin and rule or command, you know, literally. Uh, we wouldn't say commencement, you know, it's origin or beginning and commanding or ruling. Uh, and uh, particularly the, the, the beginning is an important concept that nothing really has a beginning. You know, all of these archaic positions want to find this pure, pristine, and of course, the, the, the uh, original, uh, the founder, the, 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 the uh, 
the original intent of the founders would be an example where you're going to read the mind of these people hundreds of years ago and find out what their original intent was. And that's going to give us an answer to what we need politically. Uh, that's a very archic position. So, I mean, one problem that with anarchists not thinking about RK is they fall into RK so much. I mean, I, I did one book where I really kind of tried consistently to think anarchically. It's called Lightning Storm Mind, which I did under another name. Which the other name is, well, first, I didn't choose the other name. It just came to me and the style and everything came to me uh, because of I did a lot of analysis of what was going on and why that persona emerged. Uh, but... Uh, for certain reasons, I had to start writing in a different way. And um, in that in that book, I try to do anarchic writing and, um, and anarchic thinking. And I, I'm sure I wasn't entirely successful, but I go a lot further in that direction than I do in other writing. Uh, but anarchists haven't really thought about it. They want to get the anarchist position down and what are our <laughs> claims and this sort of thing. And they, they, they don't think anarchically or act anarchically. Um, so, so that's one of the problems. And, I, you know, I've had a lot of uh, problem with, uh, with my own history, particularly with social ecology, which I, I still adhere to. I still use the term, although I always say dialectical social ecology to distinguish it from dogmatic social ecology or orthodox social ecology, which is just full of RK. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can I, say more about that, or we can go in a different direction if you want. Yeah, I mean, actually, I would like you to say more about that, because this is one of the questions that sort of, you know, that sort of keeps me up at night, is is uh, all of the ways that forms of anarchism or social ecology are, are, not, uh, are not anarchistic. And I have, I am pulled back both in the direction you're describing and in the desire to have a sort of popular front and 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 solidarity with all liberals, democratic socialists, social democrats, and and anybody who wants to, you know, make things less capitalistic, hierarchical, et cetera, et cetera, than it is now. And I don't really know how to balance those two positions. So I if if mm. that if that makes sense. I don't want to be all alone on an island of anarchism and yet I don't want to be um, abandoning anarchism at every turn with every ally and thinker and I'm I, I don't know so yes please talk about that more is what I'm trying to say yeah well first a lot of people are an anarchical in their thinking and acting sort of naturally and um, I okay so one thing that struck me, uh, a long time ago, is um, I was associating with a lot of people who were not good people. And uh, for a number of years, I still have this problem to a certain extent. I was letting people live at my house for months who should not have been around me or my children <laughs> because they had political ideas that I agreed with. And I thought, you know, that. I should do the right thing and help them out and so forth. Uh, particularly in, back in the 70s when I had this group 
the Black Pearl group. Uh, I mean, literally, people stayed at my house who were not good people. And uh, gradually, I realized that it wasn't as important what people say they believe in. It's what they do and what they show they believe in. And in particular, one group of people really affected me a lot. I, I taught at Loyola for 44 years, so I came in contact with the Catholic left a lot, but not mainly through Loyola, but mainly because they were around and used facilities and things like that. And uh, a lot of people who were in the Catholic worker movement and uh, the group Pax Christi, which is very much influenced by the Catholic worker movement, uh, uh, were, were active politically. They had a house. They have a house still in New Orleans. And uh, I came to this conclusion. Is, they're not the only group, but they're one of these groups that led me to this conclusion. They're people whom, when I'm with them, I'm happier. And secondly, I become more like the person I want to be as a result of being around them. Uh, and I, this became very important, just like I, another principle that I developed uh, a long time ago is respect for my own stupidity, which is a very important dialectical principle. First, assume, you know, I have to assume I'm stupid. I mean, I was brought up in a stupid environment, so it's easy. You know, I was brought up in a working class neighborhood in New Orleans. Basically, it was, it was a segregated, racist, uh, very obedient, you know, uh, kind of uh, environment. Uh, so I, I was taught to be stupid. And um, so uh, first, another thing, I, you know, I've studied Buddhist philosophy a lot, which teaches you basically that your mind always trips you up. It's designed to trip you up. It's designed, I mean, Buddhism originally didn't say this, but it, originally the mind evolved to, to help us uh, survive on the Serengeti Plain in East Africa when we were trying to were trying to compete with other animals, you know, for, for uh, food. And uh, we couldn't be really dialectical in our decision making. We, we had to make practical decisions. And the practical mind has always been uh, effective in the short term, but not very effective in seeing the larger picture and looking at the long term. Uh, so, so that we have a mind that trips us up all the time. And then a lot of us were conditioned in an environment that taught us how to be stupid, you know, and racism teaches people how to be stupid. Capitalism teaches people in some ways how to be really smart. You have to be very smart in some ways to succeed, but you also have to be very stupid in other ways and overlook a lot of reality in order to succeed. I mean, I could go, patriarchy is the same way. Um, uh, and other forms of domination. So I developed this idea of respect for my own stupidity. Assume that I'm stupid and always look for the stupidity and try to do something about it. And also I developed this idea of um, uh, be around people who uh, are good people and who, who, who help create in their everyday life what you're looking for in the world. This is why uh, there are things like um, mantras and slogans and so forth to keep reminding you of things you supposedly know or correct, but you don't practice them. You always go wrong. Uh, I found this when I was uh, teaching uh, Buddhist philosophy. Uh, the students were very good at learning the basic ideas, 
But then when you go into the complexities, they don't see how the basic ideas in, in, in practice. And, I, and, and I, I, would, I would say, well, what are the basic ideas of Buddhism? And they'd say, you know, like the, the uh, Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, Wisdom and Compassion, something like that, non-attachment. And it, some, one of these basic concepts was always at the basis of what it was that they thought was so difficult to understand. And uh, the world is often that way. We, we systematically forget things that are really important, and we have to keep reminding ourselves in some way. And of course, if we have a lot of people around doing the right thing and uh, speaking the right way and acting the right way and so forth, it helps. That's why ethos, you know, when I talk about these uh, 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 spheres of determination that I developed in here, in the second edition, I changed it from four spheres to five spheres. You know, it's, it's the, the imaginary, the social imaginary, the social ideology, uh, the social ethos, the social institutional structure, and the social materiality is the other one that I thought I needed to add. It overlaps in some ways with the others. But um, all of these things affect us. And uh, you know, that's, that's really what the book is about. It's about uh, how to create those conditions for being different, you know, for creating a different reality or coming in contact with a reality that's all, already there that we're ignoring. Okay, this sets us up perfectly because we're, you know, we're on the we're on the back end. We're heading towards the end, and I think this is the chance for you to explain, you know, what you mean when you say the impossible community, which I think goes right back to what you were saying. Right, and I I did I did go through the book. It's been a long time since I looked at it. I did I went through it quickly, and uh, I, I I marked a couple of passages where I, where I, I mentioned what the book was about and uh, on on the first in the first paragraph um, the book seeks to convey the message create it now and what surprised me is how few people now there's some who did this but very few people read this book and got in touch with me saying how are we going to create it now you know <laughs> what are we going to do let's let's talk about that let's create it now and uh, I had hoped that there would be more of that. Um, and there was another passage uh, that said something like that. I'm not going to. Oh, yeah, it's on page uh, 55, um, where I, I give this injunction create your own community of liberation. From this moment on, direct your most concerted efforts, your best work, and your greatest feats of imagination toward creating the impossible community. This is what I think was missing and uh, um, has been missing. I mean, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, there was more of this spirit of communalism, really. But it was so corrupted. I've, I've been looking at a lot of uh, videos and podcasts about communities from that period and how they went wrong. There's so much to say about it. Um, most, Many of them went wrong because of the problem of the alpha male. There was always an alpha male who moved in and became the leader and destroyed it. Uh, often it took people 10, 15, 20 years of working for the community to finally break with it. In other cases, there was the 
do your own thing ideology, uh, uh, the idea that you don't have it kind of, in some ways it was kind of anti-intellectualism, in some ways it's kind of an anti-thought <laughs> position where you don't have to think things through. Uh, unfortunately, other people are thinking things through all the time. They have they have uh, think tanks and they hire people to solve, you know, they have somebody doing the thinking. If they don't do it, they have somebody doing the thinking to see whether something's going to work or not or what are the obstacles. And um, it, it, sometimes it's hard work to figure out what to do. So, you know, the word impossible, impossible and impossible community was, um, I wanted it to be a dialectical word. You know, I explained why I used the word. It's it, some things are, are possible given the the, uh, the the dominant ideology and imaginary and other things are defined as impossible, but they really are possible given a different imaginary, a different ideology and so forth. So that's part of it. it it's another example of it is what it isn't, you know. Um, if we accept the the the, the uh, dominant idea of possibility, uh, we'll be very disappointed with possible communities because they won't really be communities. You know, they'll be pseudo communities. Um, so, so that was part of the idea. You know, what are the conditions that are necessary to create a good community? I and I, I for instance, I, I spend a lot of time on the Sarvodaya movement in India, so-called Gandhian movement. And one of the things that impressed me about that movement is this idea of the ashram, which most people don't understand in, in Western culture. They think of it as necessarily a religious um, community, but it's, it's really a community of practice is what it means. And the idea, I, I would call an eco-village really, because they had an idea of a different mode of production, different relationships between people, uh, uh, you know, power at the base, all of those things. Uh, and, and that w one of their ideals, which they never realized, they did a lot of experimentation with these communities, but they, they never really established them on, on a vast scale everywhere. But the idea was that every, really every village and neighborhood in India would have one of these projects, this eco-village or ashram, in which people would be practicing uh, what they believe in. And I think that would have been very powerful. I think to a certain extent, it was very powerful, that tradition, because they live in these communities and they carried on uh, these traditions. And there are people today, I mean, for instance, Vandana Shiva is very much influenced by that tradition and other people who are doing amazing things. Uh, or there's, there's, there's something called the Barefoot College. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. There's a wonderful video uh, learning from a barefoot college, I think it's it's uh, it's um, it's called, and it's 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 this one college that was set up mainly uh, uh, consisting of poor women doing self-education uh, and learning a lot and achieving a lot. It's it's very inspiring, but that tradition has been uh, a very powerful tradition and a very good example. So what I looked for in part of this book, after the theoretical part at first, were examples of people who have, who have realized the impossible community in some ways. Yeah, I think that's great. I think 
I mean, I, I found that last part of the book where you came up with the examples inspiring. And I just find in my conversations with people in which I'm trying to explain the ideals of anarchism as I understand them, I find it impossible to communicate with them because they will say something along the lines of, well, you know, that wouldn't work, or how are you going to do this, or what about that? And then I say something mm -hmm. like, well, whatever whatever it is that you've just explained that is a problem, like immigration or something like that, this is going to, this, this would cease to exist if one doesn't have all of these concepts that have created immigration. Does it, is this making sense? They say, well, how are you going to solve X? And I say, well, I, I thought I just explained how I was going to solve X. I wasn't going to solve it. I was going to, I would dissolve it if that makes sense. And then instead of saying, aha, yes, this is a truly radical and different way of being that makes sense with a different social imaginary, they just say something along the lines of, well, that wouldn't work or that doesn't make sense or you're forgetting about human nature. And then that's just sort of the end of the conversation. And I, 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 that, that makes me sad when it's the end of the conversation, but I don't know how to, how to transcend that gulf. Yeah. Well, it depends who you're talking to. I mean, some people don't want to have the conversation continue and question the concepts they're using. But I mean, everybody has to question the concepts they're using because uh, a lot of people can propose alternatives, but they don't take into account what people's lives are like and why they resist the alternative. Um, I, there's something, uh, I, the, the, the right wing had a slogan in the 60s that I thought was brilliant. Um, what do you do when somebody's breaking into your house? Call a hippie, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and it's true, you can say, oh, well, we don't want the police or anything, but if you don't set up some alternative, mm -hmm you know, some kind of self-defense system, uh, it, it's meaningless to people. They're gonna say, you're just taking away my, my uh, only source of help in some situations. There are many things like that. Uh, so you have to realize where people are. You know, yeah, and, and, and I think and, this- and you have to figure out questions that would, would shake their faith in what they believe in because if their objection is, it sounds like what you're proposing doesn't work, they have to realize that what they believe in doesn't work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if their standard is don't, don't accept things that don't work, well, yeah. the, the dominant system is not working. Not only is it <laughs> not working, it's destroying the biosphere. That's a pretty serious problem. If you realize that the system that we have is killing future generations, everybody's grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to die. The vast majority, maybe some will survive, maybe they won't, but the vast majority will die in ecological collapse. And that's a pretty severe failure. You know, it's, it's more severe than having a higher crime rate or something, whatever it is that they fear <laughs> uh, that you're proposing. <laughs> so, so that's part of the problem. I mean, there are certain issues that are crucial. The ecological crisis is one of them. Ultimately, it comes down to do you believe it or not? And most people, well, mo 
you know, I, the way I talk about it, I, this concept of disavowal is very important. There's denial and disavowal. Denial is like, with, I don't believe in climate change. I don't believe in, that we're in a mass extinction, something about that. Disavowal is, is the, the mechanism that works this way. Someone says they believe in it. They really do intellectually believe in it, but they act mm -hmm. as if they don't believe in it. And, and that's, a, that's a terrible problem. Uh, and and in, in, a, in a certain sense, it, well, I'm not sure if it's a worse problem. I, I thought it was a worse problem. Recently, with the Trump movement and, uh, and Modi and uh, Orban and you know, all the other fascist movements around the world developing, they're, maybe they're equal. But uh, right now, I think the disavowal is still a greater problem than denial. But we have to figure out how to deal with both of them. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I this is I think this is a good way of thinking about it. You know, people say that it's difficult to imagine the end of capitalism. There's this famous quote out there. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. I don't have that trouble at all. The end of the world and the end of the cap capitalism are going to come together hand in hand in the not too distant future. If things uh, right. if things go on this way, and, and there there are other there are other options out there, and it does seem you know there's there's a David Graeber quote. I mean this is this podcast was inspired by Graeber. It's a Graeber podcast. If it's if it's anything, you know that the the only war the right wing has really won is the war on the imagination and the imaginary. And I think you're right. If you get people to first grasp that the that the right wing imaginary, the capitalist imaginary, has been very successful in destroying all that is good, then they're much more open to imagining a different world. And you don't have to imagine our world being destroyed. It's it's happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And one thing that you can use in that critique is to show how the critique of capitalism and so forth is really trying to preserve some of the things that those people say they believe in. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, of course, sometimes people don't express it that way. Uh, but if 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 what we're working for is sounds very 60s like but love compassion solidarity all of those things uh a lot of these people who who vote and support right-wing policies say they believe in those things they have to be put on the spot you know if you really believe in love and compassion and so forth uh you have to care for the world around us and that's a system that does not show care. It's destructive. It's not conservative. It's destructive. So I, I think that's a message that hasn't, I mean, liberalism doesn't convey that, and much of the left doesn't convey it either. Yeah, I view, I, we need to wrap up and I have to make lunch for my kids, but I, I, I view one of the great problems of progressivism is that it says something along the lines of, you know, you don't have to you don't have to care about the environment because the government is going to make you care or, or or something along those lines and this is just not 
this 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 cannot be the answer. And when the conservatives complain about the uh, the eco fascists, I must admit I have a certain amount of sympathy um, with the with the conservatives. If you you know you can't use coercive governmental powers to mm. preserve the environment. The only way to preserve our ecology is for us to take care of it. I mean, I believe that, and I think so much of the center-left progressive government-based discourse about saving the environment ends up sort of anti-human, technocratic, mm. top-down, mm. and mm. there are probably ways to reach conservatives or people who describe themselves as conservatives with a truly conservative position, a position of of restoration and and holding on to the things that they they certainly claim they value and I think they really do value and a distorted right. political system has pulled them away from that. Right. Right. Yeah, I think there are many people who can be saved. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are other people who are on the right who are not very much like the traditional right in this country. Uh, they are more fascist, really. You know, it's fascist mechanisms that are taking over. And they're going to be resistant to all of these things. I, I mean, that's true, but I'm inclined to believe that just like just like with the 20s and 30s, fascism rises when people feel like they have lost control over mm -hmm. their lives. And many wow. of the the so-called left prescriptions suggest that the answer is to, you know, continue to deny them control over their lives. I don't, that didn't make sense. That's probably not worthy of being, uh, that's probably not worthy of being said. Um, on the podcast. But let's just say if the answer to someone who is unsure of where they fit in the world, especially a, a, a young person, and, and they're looking for answers, and there's a certain appeal of fascism to them, I at least understood in the 20s and 30s what that appeal was. The world had been broken and destroyed by the systems of power in World War One, and people claimed that they were going to put it back together. And we just have to offer them a different way to put it back together. And the sort of standard, I mean, Hillary Clinton essentially ran for president of the United States on the claim that everything was fine. I mean, no wonder people voted for Trump because if you just tell people things are fine and they don't need to be concerned, they don't need to be alarmed and they don't need to join a movement, you're just going to drive them right into fascism. You have to give them something they can do, a movement they can join that will actually solve the problem, as opposed to the, you know, the problem of fascism, which is responsible for the problem and yet offers a a solution that I think can call people who have correctly figured out that there is a crisis. If that, mm -hmm. I'll. That I think made made more sense, and I can leave that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a complex question, and there there are also a lot of people who are going to be allied with people who are more fascist in their outlook mm. because of practicality, just because uh, their economic interest determines or their social interest determines that they're going to vote for Republicans no matter what. So even though it gets uglier and uglier, they're going to stick with it. At least some of them are going to stick with it. So that's a major problem also.
You know, there's a lot yeah. of contingency in history. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it 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 is a problem, but I believe you know I believe we can, and perhaps even naively, I believe we will overcome it. And we have to start by un understanding what has driven people to these positions and offering them an, an alternative. I hope this doesn't sound like Graham thinks that the answer is to hug fascists, but uh, that's not that's not what I'm trying to say. But I that's understand. How I would interpret it. I yeah. mean, I, I, you know, my own view is, as I try to explain in the book, is, uh, well, there are really two areas where people can do a lot. Uh, one is with the small group. I discuss base communities, mm -hmm. for instance, and affinity groups. And uh, it hasn't become a huge thing. You know, I, I mentioned, imagine a movement in which everyone would be a member of an affinity group, that mm -hmm. part of the process of becoming part of a movement is you would be part of a, a base community or a, a small group that's working on trying to figure out how to live a life in this kind of world. You know, what is the best way to live a life? And uh, until people, this is this is what everybody needs to do anyway. Uh, and they, they can't really do it alone. They, they have to do it with other people. So isn't it strange that no one has really worked a lot on creating a movement in which that would be basic to it? There've been times, I mean, you know, liberation theology became a movement mm -hmm. in which Really, millions of people were in base communities, and many of them still are. Um, the other thing is to go beyond that and create small communities of, of living together. You know, mm -hmm. what Uber what called the full cooperative, which is where people produce and consume and live together, which is inspired the original kibbutz, you know, before it was really uh, corrupted by and so forth. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a heroic, radical period of the kibbutz, which was very much influenced by Buber. Um, but the question I have is, why are people not making most of their effort in that area? Why are people not doing what's most important? The most important thing is to live a good life together. <laughs> and now, that is a place. That. that is a place we can end. Right. Why the most important thing is to live a good life together. And if you're directing your energies elsewhere, start directing them towards living a good life together and everything else can be built from that. I think that would be a good start. Right. A good start. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. The book is The Impossible Community. And, you know, I want to have you back on to talk Reclue. And I mean, I want to have you back on many times. We'll see, we'll see how the scheduling oh, works, great. but you will be I hearing from me. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure.